Uh, again, we're continuing our eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel series. This is the 75th lesson. And three weeks ago, I decided before we went on to element seven, since we were at 72 lessons uh, in the first six elements, I decided I would just review the first six elements before we go on to seven and eight. And I'm going to try to do them all. I was actually hopeful, but it proved unrealistic to, uh, to combine two of them in, in review and one message. But I'm going to try to keep uh, one week per element, um, which is getting increasingly harder because we, on the introduction, we did that in, in uh, three or four weeks originally. We did the attributes of God in one week. And now today we're going to review the uh, element two, the attributes of man, which we did in four weeks before, and hopefully I can get that done in one week. But then next, uh, when we get to element four, we did that in uh, around 31 weeks. So hopefully I can still do it in one week. All right, so uh, if you look at element two, two weeks ago, we reviewed the introduction, why uh, the concept that people are sometimes pre-evangelized or not. You need to know that when you're sharing with them. We looked at uh, some of the methodologies and tools we employ at GCF, but most importantly, we emphasize the gospel is for Christians. We have come to, in the modern uh, so-called Bible-believing Christianity, to believe the gospel is for praying a sinner's prayer and, and leading someone who doesn't know the Lord to Christ, but you live by the gospel as a Christian. And every day you need to reorient yourself to the gospel and by the gospel of grace. You need to review who God is, who the, the fallenness of man, your total inability to walk in the spirit or produce any kind of godliness or righteousness apart from the power of his resurrection. And you need to humble yourself before God and, and receive the power and the grace that's contained in the gospel, which the key to that is humility and seeking it. Uh, last week, we began to look at the attributes of God. Before that, we got into a concept called worldviews. Unfortunately, even in Christian colleges today, worldviews tend to be uh, talked about a lot, but they tend to be defined in a very nebulous way, a very inexact way. So people will say it's the spirit of the age, which is a German word zeitgeist or a French word milieu is often used. But uh, it really helps if you break down a worldview into three exact components. One is who or what is ultimately real. Now, the reason you have to say who or what is because in theism, in polytheism, in theism you have a who that's ultimately real. In polytheism you have many who's that are ultimately real. In pantheism you have just a what, as in naturalism. So those are the four major worldviews. Some people postulate today that a fifth worldview is, is uh, emerging called postmodernism, where people shift their worldview according to what their need of the moment is. And... Uh, according to what their selfish interest in, in, the, in the present situation is. Um, I, can, I don't have time to review. If, uh, if you don't know what all those things mean and how to discern them in somebody, you really need to learn that if you're going to help people come to Christ. You need to know if you're talking to a pantheist or a polytheist or a, or a naturalist. Most uh, naturalism and theism are the two most common worldviews among Western people. Uh, unfortunately, most Western theists are a mixture of naturalism and theism. 
In other words, most Western Christians are kind of naturalistic-minded Christians and don't allow for much of a spiritual component to their Christianity or to reality. Secondly, is what we're going to look, review today. What is the intrinsic nature of man? In other words, does man predispose certain ways? Are we, do we come into life as a blank slate, or are we already have a, uh, a, a particular nature? We'll get into that more detail in a minute. Last week, we looked at the attributes of God, and we stressed the non-communicable attributes of God, such as his, the, the fact that he's trinity, that he's transcendent, uh, all the omnis, omnipotent, um, uh, omnipresent, omniscient, and so forth. One, one of the things that you're almost always up against, with the, if a person is a theist in our day, they are almost always have a very reduced view of God in their mind and heart. And especially if they've come out of an evangelical background, Many evangelicals deny the sovereignty of God, the foreknowledge of God, the predestination of God. Therefore, they have a smaller God than the God of the Bible in their mind and their heart. So helping people see God's sovereignty his, uh, and his bigger attributes, you might say, is important uh, because, you know, when we pray a sinner's prayer, so to speak, most people are praying to a God that's less than the God of the Bible. And so they see the gap between themselves and the God of the Bible as something surmountable by human effort. And that's what we're going to get into even more today, is that that gap is not surmountable at all. You need to be totally rescued. Uh, you cannot participate in your own rescue, except in so much as if the helicopter shows up and lets down the basket and the guy goes down the basket to grab you and put you in the basket, you don't punch him. <laughs> God, and it's only by the grace of God that you wouldn't fight him. Uh, you know, anyone who's familiar with rescuing people who are drowning knows that one of the things you have to watch out for with, in, with drowning victims is, not, is that their panic doesn't cause them to start drowning you. <laughs> and uh, so... Really, our, our situation is much more precarious than we think, and that's what I hope to get into today. Um, we talked about the communicable attributes of God. Most, almost all fallen men twist and distort both the non-communicable and the communicable attributes of God. I can't review it any more than that, or we'll not have time for today. So num Roman numeral 5, three-quarters of the way down the first page. This week, we're going to review... The gospel essential attributes of mankind were the human race. And the first thing we're going to bring out is that man is a triune being or a trichotomy. Now, uh, we formerly, when we were doing this, we did a whole week on this, so hopefully I can do this kind of quickly. When I'm helping, when I'm doing Bible studies with someone that is, is considering being a Christian, or if they've been brought up in an evangelical Christianity whereby they're pray to sinner's prayer, and they've dabbled at going to church, and they've dabbled at reading the Bible, but they're not really on fire for God, and they don't really know the whole Bible, and they're not really looking like a biblical Christian, but more like a modern Christian in their way they live and, and think of God and so forth. I, one of the Bible studies I always have is on this subject, and I actually take a sheet of paper out, and I draw three concentric circles, with the middle circle being spirit, the... Uh, 
the inner circle, I should say, being spirit, then the next circle being soul, and the, and the outer circle being body. Um, this was first taught to me by a pastor named Chuck Irish. I thought I'd make a mention of him. Wish I could tell you a little bit about who he is. Only Ray Nethery and myself would know him. Um, he's uh, from my, my parents' generation. Um, so first thing is man. every man has a physical or outer scene part that even natural lost people who don't know the Lord and don't have spiritual sensitivity can perceive. Okay, and they, you perceive those, that through your five senses. But every person has an inner, unseen, inner man. Now, um, the inner man is con- composed of a spirit and a soul that you need to understand There's a lot of debate as to whether that's two parts or one because people aren't accurate enough with their biblical terms. So uh, if if you're careful to listen to the terms, you will get this. Your spirit and soul are not separable. Therefore, if your body dies, Ecclesiastes talks about before the silver cord is broken. When your body dies, your spirit and soul both go either to be with the Lord if you die in a state of grace in fellowship and communion with God, or they go to their eternal judgment. They cannot be separated. However, they can be discerned uh, and and discussed as different things. And in fact, Hebrews 4.12 talks about how the word of God is living and active and able to discern between both soul and spirit. And learning to discern what's going on in your soul versus what's going on in your spirit is a part of growing in Christian maturity. This is made much easier by receiving the baptism in the Holy Spirit and beginning to be more uh, sensitive to and empowered by the, the, the power of God's Spirit in your spirit. God's Spirit enters your spirit when you are born again or regenerated But when you're baptized in the Spirit, God's Spirit is released in a much greater dimension in your life. And if you use the tools of His grace, including the prayer language that you receive called speaking in tongues, to keep yourself built up and edified in the Spirit and so forth, you will grow in being able to discern the difference between what's happening in your emotions and your mind and what's happening in your spirit. And to become really useful to God, you need to be very good at that. So many uh, Christians who are, many, many, many Christians who are spiritually sensitive, who pick up on the anointing and worship easily, who uh, you can sense the anointing going forth from you when you speak to them about the word of God and so forth, because they don't, don't have much development of discerning between their spirit and their emotions, and sometimes their emotions carry the day too much, it renders them less useful to God than if they would, if they would have their emotions very disciplined and if they would have their emotions separated in the sense of being able to tell what is going on in my emotional realm and because it's not always true. You know, emotions can be great liars at times. So, um, these three components... I really need to move on probably, so uh, include this. Your spirit has three aspects. Your intuition. Every person's spirit knows there is a God. 
atheists are running from that revelation. They're trying to suppress that revelation. They don't want that revelation to be true. There's a reason why they say there's no atheists in foxholes. In history, many, there are hundreds and hundreds of documented examples of some of the world's most well-known philosophical atheists and evolutionists crying out to God for mercy on their deathbed and beginning to cry out and scream and say, I realize I'm, enter I'm beginning to enter a torment. Save me. And these include very famous people like Darwin himself, who renounced his evolutionary ideas in, in the end, uh, on his deathbed. So, uh, because all men, even if they're suppressing the truths of God and unrighteousness, all men know there is a God. They're just running from that. After I became a Christian, having been philosophically an agnostic for maybe 10 years, uh, I, look, I was able to look back and go, what, realize that I was actually running from believing in God. I didn't want to become a Christian because deep down I knew that would have big implications from who was running the show. <laughs> and, uh, and we ultimately trust ourselves in our sin sinful nature to run the show which is totally absurd, but nevertheless seems real to someone who's lost. So your spirit has an intuition. It has a capacity for tabernacle, that it, is, it, it has a, a capacity for other spirits to dwell within your spirit and fellowship with your spirit. That includes demonic spirits. And that's why the, the modern evangelical idea that spiritual things are good and material things are, are what's bad, like it's all the flesh and the body, those things are bad, that just doesn't play out because there are many, many spiritual things that are totally wicked, such as Ouija boards and horoscopes and, and uh, books about magic and Harry Potter books and stuff like that. Um, there is lots of spiritual things that are that are completely anti-Christ. And in the occult and in what they call the new age, they have spirit guides and and this kind of thing. And even even most ancient cultures like the Greeks and so forth acknowledge demon spirits. Um, lastly, your your spirit has a conscience. And your conscience was created to be accurate to God's values and, and reflect his commandments. But because our conscience is fallen, and because we begin to choose sin, even as infants, and gets more and more selfish, and live in a world centered around us, we excuse, blame, shift, and begin to callous our conscience and damage our conscience in various ways. Now, the two extremes that people go to is... Um, there's what's called obsessive compulsive disorder, where, which is actually fairly common among people who've been brought up in that moralistic kind of Christianity that we talk about, moralistic therapeutic deism, where you feel guilty about things that God doesn't care anything about. You know, oh my God, I smoked a cigarette or drank a beer or something, but you don't care about selfishness or pride or selfish ambition or unforgiveness or any of the sins that are really rot your soul. <clears throat> so 
The other extreme, though, is when your conscience becomes so calloused that it doesn't function right and it doesn't bother you about things that are real, it, it should bother you about. In fact, there's a whole new uh, branch of psychology that's been developing in the last 20 years. Um, the, the secular psychologist who wrote the book on it, was, it called, first book on it was called Character Disturbance, was the name of the book. And what they're postulating is that uh, millennial people in, in particular, because we've grown up in a, in a world where it, that's amoral, that's not immoral, amoral, there's no moral compass, there's no Ten Commandments on the walls of the public schools like when I was a kid, there's no Ten Commandments in the courtrooms, there's no agreed upon opinions about what's right and wrong in terms of sexuality or stealing, the government steals all the time and and that's considered good. And in fact, Robin Hood theology has become like, the, you know, is the essence, you know, socialism is the essence of, you know, my brother got more toys for Christmas than I did, so I'm going to kill my brother and take, my, take his toys. Um, that's the essence of modern politics, <laughs> you know, um, <coughs> socialism and so forth. So the problem is, is that your conscience can underfunction and can can not bother you about things that bother should bother you greatly or it can bother you terribly about things that God doesn't care about at all so part of regeneration in Christ part of the gospel is that God will restore your conscience to work the way it was meant to work so that it bothers you when you're drifting into self-reliance and pride more than it bothers you if you littered a banana peel. So, now, private joke for Deanna Brown. All right, so, uh, she once saw me litter a banana peel. All right, so, uh, your soul, your, your spirit has those three parts. That's really important to understand. It has your ability to commune with God, your intuition, intuitive knowledge of God and his greatness, and your conscience. Your soul has your mind or your intellect. It has your will, and it has your emotions. And one of the hardest areas of life is to, is to separate between what's going on emotionally and spiritually. But your spirit gives spiritual sensory perceptions to your soul. They may, your spirit's perceptions make impacts on your emotions. So if you're worshiping in the presence of God, uh, you'll often start to be filled with the joy of God's, of the Lord in your emotions. Or the peace of God in your emotions. And the fact that that's spilling over into your emotions is, is a wonderful thing. Emotions make great servants but lousy masters. God wants you to experience a whole range of emotions, but he also wants you to have the grace and the power to discipline those emotions so that when they're not true or real, you don't submit to them or go with them. Sometimes fears, for instance, or unforgiveness feelings or bitterness feelings or so forth need to be fought against. And conquered by decisions you make, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. So the Holy Spirit can empower your soul to do the will of God. Your the third part of your being is your is your body. 
And your body has five senses. That's the last point on the page. And your, and your senses communicate sensory data to your soul, to your mind, to your emotions, and your will, and you make choices about them. I choose every Sunday not to punch this pew because it's made of solid oak and I would hurt myself. <laughs> so I never choose to punch the pew. I make decisions about out of sensory data. If I'm going to punch something, I'll punch the uh, soft part. <laughs> uh, or get a punching bag or something. Um, so that's the first thing. Flip over. The next thing we're going to talk about is, the, is uh, the nature of mankind as expressed in terms of worldview. When you're talking about a worldview, you want to ask three questions about man. Is man have an intrinsic moral nature? Uh, is man intrinsically have value? By intrinsic, we mean built in. You know, like when you're raising kids, you want to develop that they would take on your values and, and your priorities in, intrinsically. You know, at first they practice piano because you make them. But you want to be working with them in terms of eventually practicing piano. If you can't get them all the way to their practicing because they like it, at least they get all the way to their practicing because they see the benefits in it. All right? So, you know, part of growing up is you don't have to help your kids with their homework anymore. Because when they intrinsically have it, they understand the value of it. And so no one has to tell them to do their homework before they do anything else when they come home from school. In fact, you know, you can tell a kid's starting to grow up because he does his homework before he does any computer stuff or TV stuff or snacks or anything. He does his homework and uses the rest as a reward because he sees the intrinsic value therein. So that's what we mean by intrinsic. Does it become internally interwoven as part of your nature? So um, the first question is, does man have an intrinsic ethical nature? Or are we morally uh, predisposed or have a propensity toward good or evil? Now, um, that is, are humans basically morally good? Are they morally neutral? If you think they're morally neutral, there's an old-fashioned term for that that's Latin called tabula rasa, table, rasa, blank, a blank table or blank slate. In other words, a kid comes in like a, a freshly clean, you know, every, every teacher hopefully starts the day with a whiteboard or, or they probably don't use chalkboards anymore. Any schools still have chalkboards? Chalkboards uh, that's clean and, and ready to go. Um... Does mankind come in that way? Now, that has tremendous implications for whether you believe heredity or environment uh, is, is a more determinative thing about behavior. We'll talk about that as we go here. But, um, or has man come in with an evil nature, that is, he's twisted or flawed in his character? Now, because we are secular humanists, and because the official religion of our country and our public schools are secular humanism, which does not mean, don't hear me say, that I don't think that Christian teachers ought to be in public schools. I wouldn't, ever, I wouldn't recommend a Christian send their kids to a public school, but I would recommend many Christian teachers be in public schools because we, we're, we need to recapture them for Christ. So 
you know, one of the things that happened when in the fundamentalist modernist controversy is because so many of the modernist ideas were coming out of universities, Christians split off and started their own lesser universities with less academic standards and so forth to protect themselves instead of facing the battle and counteracting the battle. You know, the great Dallas Willard, who died two or three years ago, uh, happened to be not only a great evangelical teacher, but he happened to be uh, one of the fam most famous philosophers in the world as in the philosophy department from University of Southern California, and often a guest lecturer at Harvard and, and all kind of places like that. And they say that the number of Christians involved in the secular, human, secular humanistic universities is on the rise. And that, need, that needs to be. The number of Christians involved in secular humanistic schools needs to be on the rise. But that doesn't mean you should send your kids there. I certainly never would. Because they're teaching a religion. And it's spiritual. And it's got an anointing on it. And it's powerful. And it will convert them. And if they have more time in that environment than they have with you, who's going to win? So, uh, most... Secular humanists believe that man is basically good. That's the modernist view. Now, some who would, who would not concede that man is basically good will believe that man is basically an, a blank slate or a tabula rasa. But the biblical view is that man is morally flawed. Although we're created in the image of God, therefore we have a sense of justice and we have uh, altruism and so forth, and we are created for noble things, we, our things are always twisted by the power of sin. Now, when I teach my utopia class, search for utopia class at Sinclair University, or community college, what am I talking about? It's not a university. Comedy college? No, uh, it's not. No, it's a good, good little school. Uh, I, uh, I always talk about, is man basically good? basically a blank slate, or basically evil. And before we teach much about it, after I kind of define the terms, I take a survey. I have never even had a Christian believe that, uh, volunteer that man is basically evil. I always get about 90%, 85 to 90% of the students believe man is basically good, and 10 or 15% believe man is morally neutral. <clears throat> and that's, And then I always survey how many would claim to be a Bible-believing Christian, and usually 5 or 7% of the students are Bible-believing Christians, but they don't believe what the Bible believes about man's nature. Nor, are they even, nor do they even know what the Bible teaches about man's nature. So, one of the th things I then do is I always point out, I say, well, let's go back through history. Do you know that, it, uh, you know, fallen man in his evolutionary views postulates that there was a Neolithic Stone Age around 10,000 B.C. and so forth. I reject all that nonsense. But nevertheless, everyone would agree that we know a lot about history starting around 3,000 B.C. Because uh, approximately 3,000 B.C. to 2,500 B.C., Ten or so major civilizations popped up on the world scene all over the world, approximately 500 years after Noah's flood, in approximately the time of the Tower of Babel. And uh, we and and we have uh, pottery and documents and and uh, 
stone, you know, stones with, engraved with literature and stuff from all of those cultures. Every one of them, for instance, has a story of the world being destroyed by a, by a great flood. Every culture has that. And so forth. Now, if you take what we know about history over the last 5,000 years, when history is really traceable, all the days that there wasn't a war going somewhere on in the face of the earth do not add up to one year's worth of days. And yet, people believe that man is basically good. Yet man has never been able to cease from war, ever. Talk to the generation who went through World War I, which was supposedly the war to end all wars, that the way they handled the peace treaty gave birth to World War II. So, um, you know, I point out that man's inhumanity to man is one of the most common themes of all literature and all music. Christianity has succeeded, although it took it 1,850 years or to 1,900 years to do so, in causing the idea of man's value to become so accepted worldwide that there are no nations that slavery is not illegal. However, there is more human slavery today than ever before. Because man's nature remains, remains unchanged. And if you care to know it, Toledo, Ohio, and Dayton, Ohio are actually major centers for human trafficking. Keep an eye on your kids. Um, know what's going on in their lives. The arts, the, and so forth. Now, this, this should be even more determined all philosophies of history, all social and economic theories, such as fascism, communism, whatever, democracy, whatever, all have built into them that something is very flawed with man's nature. The reason people believe in democratic republicanism or democracy is they think uh, we, you know, people have to have a right to be to say something in their government so they won't be exploited by the government. So even, you know, Marxism has a whole view of history that those people who have the means of production and those people who have education and those people who went to universities and those people who own property are evil people, and they can only they, that, that sin can only be eradicated from a society by a violent res, revolution that kills all those people. That's why Lenin, after they took over Russia, said, if we have to kill 10 millions of people in order to bring about a more just and perfect society, it's a price worth paying. Wow. That's why all the utopian religions that are evolutionary based and based in the in the worldview of materialism that emerged into the 20th century when man was supposedly so proud of himself and his technology and his knowledge. Um, you know, the late 18th century there was there became 
you know, um, among people like Jefferson and Franklin or in the French philosophers, Voltaire and so forth, that we're going to get rid of this superstition of Christianity and we're going to get more scientific so we can conquer disease by real science and so forth. And we're going to bring about this just and perfect society where there's equitableness and, and all this utopian ideas. And all that gave birth to the most violent and uh, evil century in the history of mankind. If you add up just what happened from fascism, Nazism, and communism, you're talking about around 300 million violent deaths in one century. It was the most barbaric century in the history of mankind when man was congratulating himself the most on his advancements. Pride certainly goes before a fall, doesn't it? And a haughty spirit before stumbling. So, the problem is, is that men believe that man is basically good in the face of all evidence. Even after I spend a week on that kind of stuff, I do not change the opinions of the students. Because only receiving the light of Christ can bring them to that. And many a student sees what's wrong in everybody else but very few understand why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye when the log is in your own. It's, you know, it's very easy as a teenager to look at all the wickedness in the world and we're going to change the world and just vote for us. We'll take over and enforce our goodness on you. <laughs> right? That's called politics. We'll force you to be as good as we are. But the problem is, if you're not dealing with, you know, that's why William Wilberforce, when they asked him if he was going to use his great gifts of oratory to bring about a Christian change to, to the England, which he in fact did, he said, I'd rather have God change me. Second question is, do men have innate value? Now, value is always expressed in relation to something. So if you're a humanist, do we have more, does, does human beings have more uh, value than the whales? Or an endangered species? Increasingly, most people think because so many humans, an endangered species has much more value than humans. Now, they're not just being like idiots. They're living out of a well-defined, spiritually-empowered religion. And if you're going to help them, you need to use the spiritual forces of prayer, intercession, and so forth. And when you talk to them, you need to be educated enough on these things to help them see. One of the things I do is I don't, you know, I educate myself on these things enough so that I'm more educated than whoever I'm talking to about it. Not because I want to be proud of myself, because I want to help them be set free. And I don't rely on persuasive arguments of men, but I rely on quoting scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit to open their eyes to these realities. Thirdly, uh, is human character and behavior formed mostly by heredity 
or by environment. If you're a humanist, you'll say we've got to change their environment. If you're a moralistic, theo- therapeutic deist, as the Pharisees were in most of evangelical Christianity, they were environmentalists. They said, don't hang around those bad people. I'd encourage you, go far enough in the Lord that you, and, and, and go in community and teams and go empowered by the Holy Spirit and with character and go hang around the bad people. Love them, befriend them, serve them. Have te- reading programs in their schools, whatever. Go and dive in and get the bad people. As long as you understand that you're as wicked as they are, you'll be able to help them. If you come in with any self-righteousness, you'll have nothing. All right. Hopefully I got time. I'm about halfway down the second page, point C. Hopefully I can express these things in the way you'd more express them biblically. Number one, man is created in God's image. Notice I kind of did it the way you would do a worldview. Number one, man is created in God's image. Therefore, in the answer to value, people have an infinite value. The reason people have labored you know, for hours over a drunk in the gutter is because that drunk in the gutter is made in the image of God. And he was me. <laughs> you know, so, you know, when people first started helping me come to Christ, I believed all kind of things. I was like... Maybe in heaven it'll be like a mountain of marijuana. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh brother, you know, if God was in the business of giving up on people, I'd be dead. All right. The reason Christians are pro-life and anti-slavery is because man is made in God's image. And the, the reason um, that it disturbs me deeply that all of our mega philosophies and mega churches are increasingly getting less personable and less willing to s- sit with someone one-on-one and spend time with them and help them grow is because that God is a person. And the more you get filled with his Holy Spirit, the more you will be personable. And the more you'll want a church that's full of community and the more you'll want a relationship with the Lord, not moralistic therapeutic deism. The more you'll want to see the power of God, and the more you'll want to see God's power change one life at a time. We can never measure our, our success anything but one person at a time. I love John chapter 5, the pool of Bethsaida where there's, it says there were many people around the pool waiting for an angel of the Lord to stir the waters. And Jesus went in there and healed one man and left. Read the Gospels from that point of view sometime. How many times does Jesus just help the, the, the woman at the well? He wasn't addressing the, the, the cultural problem that Jewish men don't speak to non-Jews and that they don't speak to women at all. He, was, he, he addressed that problem by, do, by helping one Samaritan woman. Now that speaks volumes about 
the Jewish custom of hating the Gentiles and the Samaritans, and it speaks volumes about the, uh, the lowering of women in that culture and so forth, but he didn't set out to write a treatise on that. See, humanists always want to change things from the top down. That's why uh, you'll get humanists that'll say, well, Jesus couldn't have been that godly because he never spoke out about slavery or social justice issues of his day. He changed them one person at a time. Men are created in God's image. That's why, you know, that's where I love the ministry of the Crisis Pregnancy Center that many people in our church have been involved with. Because they save one person at a time and one baby at a time. One lady at a time. Sometimes they'll end up saving one couple at a time. And so forth. Secondly, men, is men are created for an eternal purpose. A destiny or so forth. Now, I've, I've listed some scriptures there. You should hopefully know a lot more scriptures. But what, you know, what is man that thou dost think of him? But the bottom line is, before you come to Christ, you have no reason to live. I've actually heard some Christians uh, speculating that zombie movies are becoming so popular because, in essence, fallen men are just zombies. They're just dead people walking around. Before you come to Christ, you've got no purpose. That's why I've taught for years. Boredom is God's gift to you. If you still struggle with boredom, it's because you haven't entered the purpose of God for your life yet. It's God helping you know that you're not on target. When you're in, on target with God, you will never have time to be bored again. You will be constantly in a battle to wish you had more time, but, but you won't be bored. And I bored, I can remember being bored before I was a Christian. It was probably the worst thing I went through in general because there's this feeling like, oh, I should do something. And, you know, but nothing was quite the right answer. I'll go shoot some baskets. Nah, that's not it. Go hang out with my friends. And that's why people in, engage in lots of video and TV and entertainment and drugs you know, video, video and TV is just a kind of drugs. It's kind of escaping reality. And I'm not saying I don't ever watch any TV. I watch sports. But uh, sometimes. But uh, when I have time. Which isn't that often. But, you know, I, the, honestly, the entertainment industry is, is in the boredom-killing business. But they're not doing you a favor you're really, you would really be done a favor to, if you're experiencing boredom to use that boredom to step back and think about where am I putting all my efforts in life in, in terms of Christ into? And am I really on the discipline level that God wants me to be to become the kind of effective person he wants me to become? Boredom is God's gift to you to help you get rightly centered in the purpose of God for your life. Because let me tell you this, the purpose of God for your life is much bigger than you're willing to admit. Most, pe most Christians are still running from the purpose of God for their life. Because the, the more you see the purpose of the God for your life, the more it will require of you. Lastly, man is fallen. He's not just flawed or twisted. 
but he's enslaved to sin and its power and nature. Now, because man still has the image of God, I, I wish I had time to develop this. If you don't understand this, develop it yourself in the scriptures. Talk to some of our older Christians about it. Man is, man's um, sinfulness is not perfect. Everything we do is tarnished by sin and by false motives, but never in such a way that we're perfectly conformed to evil. Hopefully you can develop that thought a little bit. Fallen men hide from God, were unrighteous, were deceived. I've listed seven characteristics of them there, some scriptures to go with them. This is, um, and uh, I'm actually going to close on time for a change. Um, this is what you need to emphasize to two groups of people. When you're dealing with secular humanists, you need to help them see the depths of man's depravity. Even more importantly, when you're dealing with people raised in the church today, they are deniers of depravity. That's why there is what's called Arminianism. And the number one thing you've got to help them with is to see the depth of their sin. Because most Christians aren't that on fire because they've received very shallow antinomian definitions of sin. And because they say, well, I don't get drunk, and I don't steal cars, and I've never killed anybody. So they're not seeing the depth of their, but, but what about your lackadaisicalness about God? The first commandment is that you should have no other gods besides him. If you're not on fire for God, if you're not in love with God, if you're not seeking God, you, you have radical sin problems. And most of our Christianity is far from on fire. We've made a, a way of, we've, we've kind of made, like the whole point of church anymore is to legitimize, uh, I didn't speak that very well, legitimize, I don't know what the heck the word is, legitimize, there's the word, uh, <laughs> you know, lackadaisicalness, Really? Hardly anybody is on fire. Hardly anybody is well-studied. Hardly anybody is that radical for God. Hardly anybody is really crucifying their flesh. Hardly anybody is really pressing into the call of God on their life. Don't judge other churches. I'd be glad if we become a radical church. That fallen man is, you know, it, probably the, big, the hardest people to reach are people raised up in churches. Really. That's the hardest people to reach. Because when you have a very shallow definition of what sin is, it's easy to say, well, you know, I haven't actually technically murdered anyone just in my heart. I actually haven't stolen stuff. I've just coveted. <laughs> and I haven't really committed adultery, I've just lusted. <laughs> and I haven't really uh, hated God, I've just been indifferent to him. I'm a pretty good person. I just need a little churching up. And that in itself is killing you. 
when you begin to see yourself as God sees you, you'll need, need the gospel of grace. You'll need a total rescue. You'll need to be evacuated uh, from your dead old sin nature. You won't invite Jesus in just to do a little dusting. You'll be like, Jesus, come in and knock the house down and build a whole new house here. 